Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you in the study of your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this. In your son's name, amen. amen. Ezekiel 39. We're going to continue the Ezekiel 38-39 war, uh, which I believe is at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. A lot of the commentators will put it at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. This particular chapter is why I don't believe it's at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, because that's the end of the world, and it's going to talk about seven years of burning weapons, so I can't believe that it's the end of the millennial kingdom. It has to be sometime before that. So, chapter 39, verse 1. Therefore, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you back and leave you but a sixth part of you, and will cast cause you to come up from the north parts and will bring you upon the mountains of Israel and will smite your bow out of your left hand and will cause your arrows to fall out of your right hand. They shall fall upon the mount, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. You, sh you and all your bands and people that are with you, I will give you to the ra ravenest birds of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. You shall fall upon the open field for I have spoken, it says the Lord. I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the islands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So shall I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. All right, so remember what we've talked about for the last two or three weeks now. <laughs> This is this whole group of nations that were listed in chapter 38, which is basically everything in the north. If you still have that map uh, into Europe, into, into the Caspian Sea area, down into northern Africa, all of, all of uh, Arabia, and on into the east. <laughs> so basically the whole world is what is, what is described in, in various places that's coming against Israel. And from what I understand, this is at the end of the tribulation period where the Antichrist is proclaimed in the middle of the temple that he is God. The Jews have rejected him now as, as God because all of a sudden they realize that they have been deceived and in his anger he gets the whole world <laughs> to move against Israel and then on the Jesus' return to this world, he destroys that army that is fighting Israel, and this is that picture. <laughs> and then it starts the Millennial Kingdom, before the Millennial Kingdom starts, because Jesus returns as Israel is being attacked by the world, speaks the word, and they're destroyed. Uh, but I've read a lot of commentaries, because I've been trying to make some sense of some of this stuff myself, and a lot of the commentaries were trying to place it at the end of the, end of the time because of the weapons that are burning, and they go, well, no modern peoples use weapons that will burn. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. With the book of Revelation, how come this was done earlier? Is this to addressing a different people? No, this is a companion to what's in Revelation. Because God is using this to prove it. You've got Daniel that talks about the end days. You've got Ezekiel that talks about the end days. You've got various parts of Zechariah, Zephaniah. Different audiences. No, they're all talking to the same, the Jewish people, and the, all, the Old Testament's all talking to the Jewish people, but it's God showing over and over again what's going to happen. You know, the Israelites are a little hard to Yeah, 
you know, everything we do, they, God repeats himself all over the place. So, But in some degree, yes, there's different audience. Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel are talking to the exiled Jewish people. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah are all before the exile. Uh, and Revelation is just a complete listing of this. Uh, basically, the reason we're in Ezekiel is because I did a, a study in Revelation, then we did Daniel, and now we're doing Ezekiel. The, the prophecies are all through the other books, but those three books are the primary books that talk have a pretty extensive uh, lessons in the end days. So I figured I'd get them all out of the way in one, one shot, one whatever it's been, three-year period. So here we are, he says, I will turn you back as, as these people come and he says they'll turn it back but the sixth part of you now most of this says that the sixth part is actually talking about the six plagues uh, uh, six punishments that are in chapter 38 22 where he says I'm, uh, I will plead against them with pestilence blood rain upon them uh, overflowing rain great hailstones fire and brimstone okay rather than a sixth part of their army being destroyed because as I was looking this up in the Hebrew, it doesn't talk about six part, it just says six. <laughs> it doesn't have part. So, and as I was looking up the different docs on it, most of them said it's talking about God turning them back with all the diseases and pestilence and hailstones. In other words, he's gonna fight against them with six different tools that he's already talked to. And then it said you will, and cause you to come back up from the north parts and will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. So this is God saying, I am going to stir you up against my people. Or in a more specific sense, allow Satan to motivate them to come against his, his uh, people. And you know, it's hard sometimes to figure out why God would let these things happen. Why does God let all these hardships fall upon his people? But you know, even for us as his children, and we've said this so many times, the hard times truly make us grow. And if we had nothing but easy times, there would be no growth. I don't know. This is one that even getting into the original language doesn't, doesn't help. But like I say, in the original, it doesn't even say plagues or anything. It just says six. I really don't know what this means. That's why some, you know, many of the commentators go back to chapter, uh, verse 22 of the previous chapter where it says that he will plead against them with pestilence and with blood and, with, and will rain upon him and his bands and upon many that are with him an overflowing rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. So there's six items there that they say that he's referring back to. And that is a possibility because that would be within the context of this, this verse. And one of the things that's very important we haven't talked about for a while, but is to stay in context with what is being said. And that usually means going back a few verses or a chapter at least and say what what did the previous chapter say what did the pre you know, next chapter say uh, so going back to that verse is really not that far-fetched because it's only four verses back and it would make great sense to say okay here's six things that God is drawing them back with uh, so I kind of tend to believe that that's what it's referring to rather than some of these little crazier ideas <laughs> and again when we're studying the scriptures we need to be able to keep things in context. And this is a discussion I had with somebody at work just the other day that you know, they were trying to tell me there were contradictions in the Bible and I asked where and she gave me one. I'm going, but that's not what that 
verse says in context. You can't take it and lift it out of context. And we showed her what the context of the verse, verse was. And this is very important for us always. What is the context of a verse? If you're, does it make any sense? Look, look for the context of it. And it usually will make more sense. And like in this case, I don't fully understand, but taking it in context, I'm going to go back to the one, the one commentator who went back to that verse and say, it makes sense to me to go back four verses, or what we call four verses, and check it out. Because remember, the chapters and verse are a relatively new creation for the Bible. And the only reason they put them in is so that we, as people who study it, can get there a lot faster. Because if you read the, the letters of Paul and, and Peter, they will say, the scripture says, or Isaiah says. And they expect you to know those books well enough to be able to go find them. You know, and if they had the chapter and verse, they would go, Isaiah chapter you know, 64, uh, 5 says this, just as we would. And it's relatively new. And they did a pretty good job splitting up the chapters and verses for the most part. But every once in a while, they'll split. They'll put a chapter split where it doesn't belong. Uh, when I studied Colossians this week, I actually read through chapter 2 into the first verse of chapter 3 because that's the same paragraph as the stuff above it. And why they split it up, I don't know. Okay, The guys who put the chapters and verses did not even pretend that it was inspired. <laughs> they were just trying to make it easier for us. They tried hard to, to kind of match it up and not break up thoughts. But every once in a while, they have broken up thoughts. And so just keep in mind when you're studying the Bible, you know, we encourage people to read a chapter or two a day. You know, but sometimes that chapter is not the best way to, to break it up. I don't know how they did it. There had to be some system. You're right. There had to be some system that says, this is where we're going. You know, Isaiah, five turns in. <laughs> Who knows how they did it? Uh, but it's been a relatively new thing that the verses have been, out, have been added to the Bible. But do remember they're not inspired. <laughs> All right? They are a man-made creation. All right, verse 3. I will smite your bow out of your left hand and will cause your arrows to fall out of your right hand. Well, so, depends on how long they've been fighting. They might be out of Well, maybe they're out of ammo. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of an interesting point. Is will there be a reversion back to older weapons during the tribulation period as the Antichrist is running the world? <laughs> I never even thought about that as a possibility. Yeah. Uh, maybe there won't be fuel for the for the armored vehicles. Maybe there will literally be the horses and and bows and arrows and chariots that have been talked about. So I never even thought about that as a possibility. But you know, I never even thought about the possibility that that may be a possibility because it is theoretically possible that you go to battle with horses and, and older weapons. And that would answer a lot of these questions about how these weapons burn. But uh, figuratively or real, doesn't truly matter in the long run. It's going to happen. God says, I'm going to strip these weapons. And it is quite possible that these are, he's using terms that he's used to, to using. Because uh, as Amy pointed out, if, you know, holding a rifle is pretty much the same stance as holding a bow and arrow, uh, if you're holding it correctly. <laughs> yeah, if you're holding it you know, with, a, with a sighting and everything, it's very much the same way as a bow. So it could very easily be his interpretation. He goes, funny looking bow, but... <laughs> 
but that's how he saw it. And you got to think, you know, this is written almost 2,500 years ago, or you know, so we're talking a long, or excuse me, 3,500 years ago, uh, or so we're look, looking a long time. How would the prophet seeing modern day weapons yeah, describe them? So, and that's anything, anything, even when we look at the book of Revelation that is written 2,000 years ago, how does John, you know, describe these things that have no frame of reference for at all? You know, he's going to say, well, it's a chariot. I don't see the horses, but it's got to be a chariot. It's moving, moving very quick. He's using the only thing he can relate to. So it is possible that it is poetic. He's describing it as best he can. It could be even possible that... By the end of the tribulation period, the ammos have been worn down, and they're back to using ancient weapons. Uh, maybe he's confiscated all the weapons, and there aren't any weapons to, to use, because that's what's been trying to be done in this day, is confiscate all weapons except for the police forces and, and military. And it could be possible that they run out, especially if they get rid of all the, the gun makers, because drive them out of business. Who knows what could be? It, I never thought about this being more literal than symbolic <laughs> and I don't like trying to make it symbolic because it trying to make it symbolic you know symbolism is, is very hard to figure out some of the further down parts so you've actually provided me a way that it possibly could be a real <laughs> real event it wouldn't be, be hard to go back to old weapons especially wooden weapons <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty easy but he says that he smites the bow out of their left hand and causes their arrows to fall, which is basically disarming them, and that God can do with, with ease. And he says, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all the, your bands and the people that are with you, and I will give you unto the ravenous or the, or the uh, birds of prey of every sort and to the beast of the field to devour. So he's talking about a lot of people dying. And if you think about this, the majority of the world's armies coming against Israel is going to be a very large army. And we're all going to go together allied against them, so send us everybody. The logistics of such a thing would be huge. <laughs> Trying to feed them would be huge. Much less getting all their weaponry there, but. Yeah, he, he only had 300, 3.5 million people to deal with. But you're right, logistically, it is a, it'll be a huge nightmare. But if you have no other, wep no other enemies to fight, you put all your resources there and you can do it. But God says, you know, birds are, birds are going to have a feast. And all the other scavengers are going to have a feast. And later on, he's going to tell, tell the prophet, call them together for this, for this feast. And we're going to see that they're going to be burying people for a long time. But it says that uh, they shall fall in the mountains, and then in verse 5 it says, And you shall fall upon the open fields, for I have spoken it, says the Lord God. And basically, they're going to die wherever they're at. And specifically, God says in verse 6, I will send a fire upon Magog and upon all them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord God. And that word carelessly, just as last chapter we talked about, means to dwell in no fear because of the security they have. Oh, well, islands, islands all around in the, basically the whole world, okay. the whole world in this case, because they've gathered the world together. He says they're dwelling in their own security. Now, what kind of fire is this? We don't know, but it's God saying, "I am going to destroy." Uh, 
I doubt highly that it's nuclear, even though I've heard some pastors say nuclear, especially when places that you know talk about them marking the dead bodies and everything and having things burn that shouldn't be burnt, you know. But nuclear is pretty devastating, but it, and God says it's my fire, so I don't believe yeah, that it's going to be, yeah. I don't believe it's going to be nuclear, but when, when, when Elijah calls down, called down the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel on, on the sacrifice, that fire burnt the sacrifice, the water, the rocks, and scorched the ground underneath it. And it was so controlled that it didn't strike down the people all around it. So God sent a strong fire that didn't kill, you know, strong enough to melt rock, destroy rock, and yet didn't expand to burn and scorch the people around. Up on the hill and the soldiers came out to take him in. Yes, you're right. They came to Not arrest him. <laughs> on two other occasions, they came to arrest him and God destroyed them. Yeah. And, that was and the third guy goes, please don't destroy me. I'm just following orders. Was he, he, wasn't, he wasn't as arrogant as the first, uh, first two commanders. He was much more humbled, saying, "Don't kill me." Yes, like, like yes, that was fire too. Right? That was fire. If, if I remember correctly, that was fire too. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that yeah, event. That makes a lot of sense about the so it is quite possible that God will send fire that will destroy the people and would be sufficient to burn anything that's out there. Yeah. If He can burn and destroy rocks in a on an altar, it would destroy any of the metal metal weaponry that we have and composite weaponries that we have uh, out there. Where was that other fire at? Elijah, it was Elijah? The, the king Ahab sent soldiers to arrest Ahab, and I don't remember off the top of my head, which it's going to be in Kings or, uh, Elijah, or Elijah? Elijah. And uh, they went to arrest him, and they said, you know, in the name of the king, you're going with us. And, and they got them and their entire band got burnt. And the second guy did the same thing. The third guy basically, he came very humble and says, please don't destroy your servant. Uh, I'm just following God said, go with him. That, that he was, fear, had, was a God-fearing person in the first place. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, but he definitely was smart. He didn't go to him with the same words as the other guys saying, you're coming with us. You know. We see here that God says, I am going to destroy Magog. I'm going to destroy all those that dwell carelessly, that are, are insecure, you know, feeling secure. Uh, falsely secure is what this means on the idea. Much like America has been in, in previous decades and stuff where we've dealt in absolute security that you know, we're so far away from the troubles of Europe and the Middle East that we don't have to worry about things. And now with our modern days and the world being so small, we're seeing that that security was false. But he says, I'm going to destroy all these enemies. And that would fit into the millennial kingdom rule. God's going to destroy the enemies of Israel. And the only ones that will be left are those who don't take, haven't taken the mark, turned to God, and did not take the mark of the beast. And so we're going to see he's going to come in, and even if he totally destroys the world, which would fit this picture, how he does it, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to do it. It just says the fire of God. And sometimes fire is just literally his anger and his indignation. God has opened the earth and swallowed them. He has sent fire down to kill them. He sent fire and brimstone on on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he's done all kinds of different ways to kill large groups of people. You know, Pharaoh and his army, you know, Pharaoh's army was swallowed up in the sea. So there's all kinds of ways that God can do this. Uh, so if it's, his, if it's poetic and it's his, his anger and his, his attack, that'll be okay. If it's literal fire, it's okay. 
that you could speak them out of existence. It's not, but that would take their bodies. Yeah, God can do pretty much because it says in Revelation that when Jesus comes, there's a sword protruding from his mouth, which indicates some form of speech, speaking of his word that will destroy the enemy and fire. Because remember, when Jesus returns, he's no longer the sacrificed lamb of the world. He's the lion of Judah, the king of this world. The one that they wanted in the first place to start a kingdom, not the sacrificed lamb, but they're going to get their, their lion of Judah, the king who's going to rule the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years and then into eternity with the new heaven and new earth. This is, where, this is that period of time we're talking about, that second coming where he steps down on Mount Olive and it splits, refreshing that whole area. The Dead Sea will become a living water again and the waters will flow from, the, from Mount, Mount Olive as it tells us in Zechariah and everything will be fresh and new in that area and he'll rule from that area. And we already know there's going to be earthquakes. We've talked about the earthquake, great earthquake that makes all the hills fall. Revelation tells us about the great earthquake that makes all the hills and islands flee away. And everything about this world is going to be totally different when it, Jesus returns, including the topography of it. It's going to be a huge different world during that tribulation period. And we look at this, and you know, most people don't even think about these earthquakes and stuff that get talked about. And they go, well, okay, he's, he's going to do this. But it's going to be a hugely different world that he's ruling in. And it looks like most of the people are going to be dead. All right? And I've talked about this. Just in the book of Revelation, we know that 66% of the population of the world will be destroyed by the end of the tribulation period. And you figure the world, I think, is, what, 4 trillion people or something right now? 4.5 trillion people. So that would mean there's going to be about... 1.5 trillion people left in the world at the end of the tribulation period. That's enough. No, that's still a lot of people in the world, but that's a lot of people dead. But you figure that means that two out of every three people will be dead by the end of the tribulation period. That's a lot of death. Well, there will be some fat birds. <laughs> some fat birds. Not all of them are dying in this event. But yes, there'll be some fat birds. It tells us this. And then it says, I will make my holy no name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And this is that point where God returns, Jesus returns, the people recognize him for who he is, and say, oh, he is the Messiah. And they will recognize him, and then the world will know this is their Messiah. This is their, their king and their ruler, and he'll be the ruler of the world at that point. And this is a big deal. This is going to be a big deal when he finally returns and he's recognized. It's kind of an amazing thing, and it's, it's fun reading these things and watching how God is bringing all of this stuff together. Uh, when we, as Bible-believing people look at the Bible and we look at the news, we see it totally different than the rest of the world does because we go, oh, look at this. God has already told us all this stuff's going to happen. Yeah. He told us that there would be one world government. Where are we coming to so quick? One world government. One world currency, one world currency which we're probably technically at because the world tran transacts businesses through electric currency, uh, uh, electronic currency exchanges. So we're probably at the highest levels at one world currency already. We're one world 
religion, which we have the huge ecumenical movement going on, trying to draw all the churches and, and religions together into one group that doesn't, that's, and that's where this whole idea of, well, what's good for you is good for you, and you know, we, all these different religions are all end up at the same place, you just be, be happy, and there's, of course, the evangelical churches that are pushing against it, and then there's all kinds of churches in various denominations and pastors that are joining together with the ecumenical movement. Uh, right in Kingman, there's an economical, ecumenical <laughs> group that meets together, and it's got the, the Muslims and a handful of Christian churches in the area and the, all the different groups together worshiping and saying how, how we all believe in the same God and we're all one and just different books and different manifestations that, that are out there. And it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. They've been talking about this since the 60s and 70s at least that I know of, but it's getting more and more powerful. And the people who want to hold on to God's word being true are starting to really be outnumbered. It's getting harder and harder sometimes in some places to find a church that will hold on to God's word as being true. When you talk about one world government, are you talking about each, each country still be at the same type of government, or just be one, really one? One world government is what the Bible describes. And the scary thing is the UN already has the world divided up into ten regions so that if, the anti, if and when the Antichrist comes in, all he's got to do is take over the the UN and divide the world back up to into the 10 regions that they already want it divided into. The UN is really pushing for a worldwide tax so that they can be self-supporting so that the United States can't say what we say all the time. If you don't bow, you know, you don't back off, we'll just cut off your funds. And so they want, they want a worldwide tax so they're not dependent upon America for all practical purposes. You would have to be so good at that God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. A quarter of the world is destroyed in the book of Revelation real early. It could be very easy. It says, okay, you don't want to, you don't want to comply. We'll just drop a couple nuclear bombs on you, and you won't be an issue anymore. Concentration camps. Concentration camps. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to yeah. subdue the people. Yeah. And this is the Antichrist we're talking about. It's, it would not be that hard to get rid of. And like I say, the Revelation says there's a quarter of the population destroyed at one time. You know, drop a couple nuclear bombs on the, you know, nuclear weapons on the, some large population areas that are fighting against it, and they're gone. The point is how it happens. You know, the Antichrist is going to be Satan's mouthpiece, or the, the father of lies. He could say whatever he wants to make it happen, too. You know, politicians lie all the time, even today, and the Antichrist is going to be an expert at it. The Antichrist is going to be, the, you know, in, endued with the father of lies and being the absolute best liar could say whatever it takes to, to make these people agree with him that it's a good idea. Uh, he's violent enough that he could destroy a huge, you know, several nations to say, okay, you don't want to capitulate, I'll take you out of the picture. All kinds of different ways that that can happen. All we need to understand is it's going to happen. Understand, it could be an economical uh, decision. You know, we're going to withhold your funds. And this is, England used to be the mightiest nation in the world economically. The United States bought up all their debt and, and got them to the place where they told them what they could and couldn't do econ, you know, on spending their borrowed money. And England very quickly fell from its prominent place. 
and America has taken over, and we are on the precipice of being able to be, have people tell us what we can do or not do with our money. Yeah. Be, be aware that all these different ways that things can happen, you know, we look at it from our perspective, it's and it's already, we're already seeing things being moved in place, places to cause it to happen. And eventually, if the United States continues to push the UN too much, they'll move. Okay, they wouldn't mind moving out of New York if it came down to it. And I would guess the place that I would say they're going to would go to would be Babylon, just as, because Babylon becomes the head, headquarters for the Antichrist in the, in the book of Revelation and in various other places. So it would not be surprised me if the UN one day said, we're moving headquarters to Babylon. So that would not surprise me to hear them move to Babylon and say, okay, which would take them out of control, you know, some of the direct control of the United States. Babylon is the center of... of Satan's power seeds all through the scriptures. The, the world's going to be given over to Satan to do mostly what he wants. Okay, and remember I've even said that even during the tribulation period, he is not going to have free hand to do what he wants. Otherwise, there would be no life left on this world. All right? Because if he had free hand to do anything he wanted, it would be, okay, God, I'm taking all your people away from you. And so there's not going to be that much power given to him. He's going to be given a lot of power, He's going to be given a lot of freedom, but not enough to take everybody. <laughs> just enough power to think that he has power to do what he wants. Just, just enough rope to hang himself. Basically. <laughs> Basically. And he's going to be, uh, once the church is gone, there's going to be a lot of violence, a lot of activity, you know, a lot of sin that's going on without any salt or any you know, conscience going on. Satan will have a lot of free hand, but he will not take the people's lives because that would... Otherwise, he would. Otherwise, when we read this, and Satan took over and the world ended. <laughs> and that's not what happens. So he doesn't have full, free power to do what he wants. He still will have a leash on him. Yeah. He, he can tempt the people, but we still have our own free will. They still have a free will. There will be less uh, resistance against him because the church won't be there. The, there won't be prayers again, going up against what he's doing. There will be less resistance because the spiritual world will be totally different at that point in time on this earth, but he won't have the power to totally destroy. All right? Uh, because remember, always remember, Satan is not God's equal. God created Lucifer and the, and the three, uh, 33% of the angels that fell with him are created beings. All right? They are not equal. He's not the opposite of God. He is a created being. God could speak him out of existence if he wanted to, but there's a place prepared for him, the lake of fire, where he will spend eternity in. And even there, he is not the ruler of hell. He is a prisoner in hell. Okay, He is not the ruler of hell. He, it is built for his punishment. And so even in there, he's not going to get what he wants. <laughs> So keep these things in mind. I'm sure he does. <laughs> yeah, he's seen things from the spiritual side. Just somehow he's deluded himself that he's going to win. Or he's made it so that he's going to hurt God as best he can before he loses. I don't, you know, what goes through the mind of a totally evil being or person, I don't know. Yeah, I can't figure that out. I can't figure out if he somehow has deluded himself that somehow he can win. Or if it's just his goal is, I'm going to take as many of God's prized possession away 
that I can and hurt him as much as I can before I lose. And either way, it's just as bad. Matter of fact, trying to hurt God is probably a worse problem than just saying somehow deluded himself that he might win. Because somebody is willing to hurt an innocent person is more dangerous out there. You know, how many times do people take hostages to try to get their way? Okay, and their thought is, well, they're not going to let the hostage die, so I'm going to get what I want. Who knows what his logic is? But you realize that the angels, many of the angels are warriors for God. There is a battle going on in the heavenlies between the, angel, the angelic forces and the demonic forces. Now, what that means in a spiritual battle, I don't know. Are they fighting hand-to-hand? Are they you know, using some kind of weapons, the power of God? Who knows what's going on? There was a seraphim that was guarding the entrance to Eden with the flaming sword that would, went all around it to keep Adam and Eve and the people out of the Garden of Eden. This whole idea, and we've got to remember, there's a battle going on. Even to this day, there's a battle going on. And it's a big battle. And what that means in heaven, I don't know, because God could end the battle at any time. He is using Satan and the fallen angels for the testing of humanity to see whether we're going to turn to him or not or if we're going to grow. And as harsh as that may sound, it is what he's using them for. And they're being used. Satan is a caged or toothless lion to a degree. Not that he's not dangerous, but he is controlled. He is not somebody that can do whatever he wants. He's on a chain. He's on a leash. And God says, you can only go so far. And that's the beauty of the book of Job, is that he tells us how he uses Satan. You know, Satan, have you thought about Job? <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about my, my, my church down the street? Satan, yeah, I really want to go after them, but you won't let me. Well, here, you can do this. And all of a sudden, the church gets attacked. We as individuals get attacked. All so that we can be grown. Satan is used by God to strengthen and I was hearing a story about the biodomes that they put out where they stopped all the winds and trees and everything, and they were having trouble with the trees getting bigger and falling flat, falling down. And, they, and the bio, a botanist told them, well, the problem is that you, they're not having to deal with storms. You know, the storms make the tree stronger, and if you eliminate the storm, the cellular structure of the tree can't support the tree and it becomes weak. And you know, it's the same way with us as humans. The things we go through make us stronger to go through problems later on and deal with issues that go, go on in our life. I like to say, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, and it really is a true statement. Most of the time, if we look back at things that have happened in the past that when we were in the middle of them, we thought were the worst things that have ever happened to us, Usually, once we get far enough away from it, we look back and said, wow, I got stronger. I now can deal with more issues or more problems because of that event in my life. And God knows that. You know, the wisdom of God is amazing. He knows all these things. And I kind of like it sometimes when, when some study gets, comes, comes out and it just says exactly what God said in the first place. My, of course, my first thought is, well, you guys just wasted millions of dollars to prove what God had already told you. But by the same token, I think, okay, you just proved the word of God. You wasted a lot of money to prove it, but, you know, but they just prove God's word. Over and over again, they'll come out with some study that proves God's word. And you know what? If it's against God's word, it's not a valid study because it's never going to be against God's word because God's word is true. 
And then later on, they'll do other studies that disprove the one that tried to, tried to say something was against the Bible. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that we see God say something and he lifts it up. And it's true. And you know, we talk about this so often. You know, people will say, you know, especially the lost world, well, how can you follow that old ancient book that's not relevant for today? I'm going, what part of it's not relevant for today? <laughs> you know, God's word is so relevant for today. You know, people are still people. All the sins that people commit are, have always been, co been, been committed. All of our politicians are still acting the same way as they did in the biblical days. You know, it's not, nothing new under the sun. I haven't found anything in scripture that's really not relevant when you took at the overarching principle talked about it. You know, this idea of maybe, you know, uh, chariots attacking people, that may not be so relevant, but it's still people are going to attack and they're going to attack with very powerful weapons that the chariot represented in their day. Tanks would be the equivalent of a chariot in their, in, in their day. So we need to be able to look at the fact that the scriptures are very relevant for today. People are still sinners. They're still sinning against God. And they're still doing the same sins. Satan's attack is the same as it's always been. If you study the religions, all the religions keep repeating themselves. They just change the words. In their, in their, and when you start digging deeper into them, they still do more work, uh, good than bad and you're going to be okay. Live enough lives, lives and you'll be okay or you're going to die and be annihilated. It's one of those three things that all the religions talk about. Reincarnation, more good than bad, or it's, there's nothing out there anyway. And that's what all of them teach. And Christianity says, well, you can't get there on your own. You need Jesus Christ. It's the only religion that actually says you can't get there without God doing it for you. All the rest of them have, do, most of them would do more good than bad. You know, you know there's a great, great big cosmic scale up there when you get before God, and whichever way it tips is where, where you end up. What a sad way to live. Especially if you did something bad on your way out, the, out, out, the, out of this existence. But that's the whole point that they never know, is how much good do you need to, to, do, to make up for the bad? You know, are they one-to-one? -one? Is there certain sins that are so bad that you have to do lots of good? Are there some good things that are so good that covers lots of bad? And that's the process that you have to go through if you're going to believe that there's some cosmic scale up there weighing out good and bad. You know, how good is good and how bad is bad? Mortal sin. Oh yeah, if you had the mortal sin, you're in trouble. Of course, you can have the people buy your, buy your freedom out of hell too, <laughs> purgatory too. So instead of just out and out selling indulgences, they're selling can, candles and prayers and, and, and everything and stuff for you. And the more, the more you give, the more you, the more you've uh, helped, the more points you've earned for whoever, yourself or whoever it is you're buying the materials for. So, uh, so indulgences still exist. They're just not, <laughs> let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us to keep in mind that you're going to have your will be accomplished no matter how far-fetched or how strange it might seem. We know that you will have your will accomplished because you said that it will. Help us to go forward and, and follow you in all that we do in your son's name. Amen.